So for those of you that may not know me, my name is Dan Astuto. I serve as executive pastor here, and it is a privilege to serve on this team. Uh, pastor Pat has been here twice as long as me, so he is taking a little break. He mentioned last week him and Tina are down at uh, Billy Graham's um, retreat center called The Cove. He's being ministered to by Pastor Jim Cimbala, Brooklyn Tabernacle, for the next couple of days, and hopefully just being refreshed as uh, I believe he appreciates and needs. So keep him in prayer. Uh, they'll be there for a few days, returning later this week. Um, but let's open with a word of prayer. We're going to continue in the series Philippians. Today is part five. If you have not heard the messages or would like to catch up on the messages, they're all on our website, greaseassembly.org. You could do that um, anytime during the week. Typically, the messages get up by Tuesday afternoon of the uh, previous Sunday's messages. And I know some of you like to take advantage of that, listen to them throughout the week. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to open your word, God. We thank you that your word is alive, it's living, it's active. God, that we can open up ourselves to it and know that even if it convicts, even if it hurts, Lord God, you desire to draw us deeper in our walk with you and God, that we can allow it to happen, that we can submit to your lordship and know, Lord, that good will come from it. So, Lord, I pray for these next few moments as we look in your word that, Father, you would not only uh, convict us and challenge us, but, God, that we would open up ourselves to change, Lord, in the areas where we need to change, that we would conform to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. May the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable these next few moments. Speak to me and through me, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 So be it, Lord. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in the middle of that chapter today. If you have the Pew Bibles there in front of you, it's page 620 that we'll be looking at. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 18 today. And we're going to really focus in on verses 14 and 15. This is probably the first time I've been here a little over 15 years, and I told a couple brothers that this is probably the first Sunday morning that I wanted to call in sick, not because I am sick, but because I was so deeply convicted by the text that I've been studying. Um, so, but I didn't do that. I'm here. I didn't want to put that on Ken or, or Bob, you know, call them at 8 o'clock in the morning and say, I'm not feeling well. you got to preach. But... Um, that's, that's kind of, uh, when you have a multi-staff, especially myself, kind of being um, Pastor Pat's you know, right-hand guy to fill in where, where he needs, I always think, I better have a sermon ready. I mean, Pastor Pat rarely gets sick, but I know one day that call's probably going to happen, right? Um, but here today in Philippians 2, um, the Apostle Paul, as most of you know, he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi, and as Pastor Pat has shared um, the context is he's in jail. He's in prison. He is not in an accommodating uh, situation. But yet the theme and the subtitle of this is the pursuit of joy. We see joy throughout. I took the time last night to count 
And the word joy in the New King James translation or any form of the word rejoice is found 16 times in this short letter of just four chapters. So we see this strong theme of, of joy um, that Paul is writing about. And how can he do that? Well, if you look in the, later on in the letter, Paul writes that he's content. And I think when you decide to be content in all circumstances, joy will flow. And that's what Paul got to this point in his life where he was content, whether he was hungry or well-fed. And he goes on to talk about that in, in chapter 4. Um, but the joy uh, that Paul wrote about, he lived. And I don't know about you, but I could always use more joy. And I know that my family would be quick to testify. Dad, husband could always use more joy. But they wouldn't say that today. How many of you want more joy? That's the subtitle series. You want to pursue joy. You know, maybe you don't, but your loved one wants you to have more joy here today. But God's desire is that we would be people of joy. And as we read through these verses, I'm going to just ask that you would open up your heart to what the Holy Spirit would want to say to you here today. Starting in verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. The proper word really would be grumbling instead of complaining. But our translation says complaining. Another translation says murmuring. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am what? Glad and rejoice with you all. Being poured out, sacrifice. He's talking about all these things, and he's just saying, I'm glad. Verse 18, for the same reason you also be what? glad and rejoice with me. Now, if you're here today, you're reading this, I mean, you understand the context, it just doesn't make sense. You know, how he could just be admonishing us, I mean, from where he's at and, and so forth. But, you know, God is a faithful God. And anything that God, through his word, tells us to do, he will equip us to do. Are you with me? So if God says in 1 Thessalonians 5 where it says be joyful in all circumstances, it's possible. It's not impossible. Someone once said it's him possible. In other words, in our own strength, forget about it. But with the Lord, and that's why we have to live and reside and walk with Christ, because with Christ we can do all things. That famous verse that we know, Philippians 4.13, that's mentioned here. I want to look, really focus on verses 14 and 15. For time's sake, we're only going to have time to go through these two verses here today. But as I was looking at these words and studying the Greek and, and the root of some of these words, man, so much came alive to me, and I pray it comes alive to you here this morning. First of all, in verse 14, that word do, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce the Greek words right, so bear with me here today, but uh, poio is the word that Paul uses here, and it's a verb expressing an action as continued and not yet completed. 
That's what the idea. Here is where we run into a potential conflict as we, if you look at the verses earlier, work out our salvation. Paul is commanding that we each make the choice of our will to continually make this a habit of our life. Make what a habit of our life? To do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. He's writing to the saints, okay, the church, as we see in the earlier verses of this letter, and he's saying, listen, um, uh, looking at Corinth and looking at some of these other churches that I've begun, uh, disputing can easily rise up. Do we know that? Do we know that that could happen here? You know, we're not exempt because we uh, have a sticker, love God, love people. Disputing could happen amongst the body of Christ, whether it's here in Greece or any other part of this world. Okay? So Paul is giving this little uh, admonition here to do how many things? There it is again. Now, all in the Greek means... All, right, yeah, you didn't need to get out strong concordance there to interpret that. All is all. Now, we would love to set the bar and say do some things. Man, Paul, I mean, be realistic here. I mean, do all things. I mean, come on, Paul, so you don't understand what rush hour traffic is like. You didn't deal with that, Paul. I mean, we can grumble when we get in traffic and we're late for a meeting. No, God knows what he's talking about. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. And it's interesting, though, because even that word all, um, in, in the Greek, it literally, the emphasis is on all in this verse. It means all things do. In our translation here, it's do all things, but literally the emphasis is on all when Paul writes this letter, when you study this in the Greek. He's saying all things do without grumbling and disputing. What does grumbling mean? I'm so glad you asked. Now, this word in the Greek is another word. It's pronounced gagusmas, if I'm saying that right. It's a long word with G at the beginning, and it means to say anything in a low tone. It can reflect a secret debate or secret displeasure not openly avowed. Now, I thought of a few of you men that have deep voices. I was thinking about having you come up here and giving you the mic and just, you know, just have like a grumbling test, okay? And maybe some spouses would nominate their husband. No, I'm just kidding. But that word grumbling, I think we do it more often than we think. It doesn't mean literally that, you know, we're spoken out loud. But that word in the Greek, it's an interesting word. The English Dictionary defines grumbling as complaining in a bad-tempered, nagging, or discontented way or making a low, dull, rumbling sound. <laughs> we can only imagine that. Now, I am not guilty of grumbling. Never grumbled before. I'm just kidding. In my life, my wife would have got up and walked out. I am so guilty of this Greek word that I've been studying more than I would want to confess here today. And it's not necessarily, it could be, I mean, the silliest of things. And church, I just want us to really open up ourselves to what God is saying here today because when we look at the context of where Paul is writing, you know, grumbling, not only is it sin, but it's bad because it distorts who God is or should be in us and through us. 
And if you're honest, like I'm trying to be here today, most of our grumbling usually happens with those that we love most or are around most, right? I mean, that's just the reality. As I keep referring to my wife and kids because they could testify to this today because I'm around them the most. But why is grumbling really so bad? I could give you reference after reference. I don't want to camp out here too long, but I want to give you enough here to really understand the significance. In Jude, the book of Jude, which is the last book, I believe, right before Revelation towards the back of the Bible, um, Jude is describing apostates. And in verse 16, I just want to read it to you here for a moment. You could just write Jude 16 if you're taking notes on your outline here and read this later. Really, the whole uh, there's just one chapter, one short letter here. But Jude is describing apostates, and he says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. He goes on, and then he says, But you, beloved, remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus. But the point that I'm making here is anything associated with grumbling is not good. In the Bible, Exodus 16, write that down. You could read this later on today. We see this word, this Greek word used throughout that chapter uh, when the Israelites are in the wilderness, grumbling, grumbling, and more grumbling. God answers even some of their complaints, and then they grumble about the wa- lack of water. Where's food? Oh, this kind of food? Uh, we want it. And it's just this consistent grumbling. And And Paul refers to this in one of his letters to the church at Corinth where he refers and said, God finally gets fed up and he destroyed thousands. There's a plague that came, you know, and thank God for his mercy because, you know, if God operated that way here today, I'd be standing up here all alone. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just seeing if you're paying attention here, folks. If we are honest, most often when we grumble, we are saying, God, we don't believe that you're sovereign. We don't believe that you're able. We don't believe you're the giver of all good gifts. We don't trust you to work out these things for our good and for your glory. We're upset. And we want, maybe we don't want others to know, but oftentimes they do know. You see, this, this murmuring, this grumbling... It, it, it also means like what happens on a Sunday morning as far as a crowd setting where you can't make out. You just hear like a rumbling as we greet one another, but you can't really understand people's conversations. And you just, that's kind of this whole idea, you know? You just, this, this just negative mumbling, low tone that's going on. George Brooks says this, grumbling and disputing are sins of disposition. These sins grow out of discontentment. We grumble and dispute when things are not working out as we plan them. If we grumble and dispute often enough, these two things will become habits. Wow. You see, grumbling and disputing are not good, church. I don't need to go on about this, but let's look at this disputing word that Paul mentions here. Because this implies a questioning mind and suggests an arrogant attitude by those who assume they're always right. You know, the NIV, I think, uses the word arguing here, but it loses its real meaning there. But 
It, it, it has this idea of arguing with the body of Christ. You see, Paul is again talking to believers here, and he's wanting them to avoid disputing amongst themselves, arguing about petty things that can come up. But it also refers to leadership. It's the same word used again, Moses, where they were grumbling about Moses. Who are you? Why did you bring us out here to die? Remember, in Exodus, what kind of leader are you? We should have left us where. And they're just grumbling and complaining and arguing. It, it, it means to challenge in a selfish manner uh, rather than a submissive and humble spirit. You see, there's nothing wrong with questioning, you know, uh, uh, something or authority and talking, but it's the spirit, it's the attitude, it's what's going on inside. And we're going to talk more about this. So the first key word was do. The second word I want you to write down is become. Become. And this is so important here in our text here. We see in verse 15 that you may become blameless and harmless. You see, that word become, we have to understand that this whole thing I'm talking about is a process. Are you with me? You ever heard of sanctification, right? To be more and more to where we're sanctified, we grow in sanctification. That's to be more and more Christ-like. And as God reveals things to us, we grow and, and we become more like Jesus. But it's a process. Salvation is a moment. Sanctification is a process. Big difference. And, and Paul is saying that you will become, become, you may become blameless and harmless. I want to look at these words here, and if you're taking notes there, I put these four down based upon this text. Children of God should be blameless, harmless, without fault, or some of your translations will say above reproach, and fourthly, we see in verse 18, children of God should be joyful. And we'll look about this a little deeper in a moment. But that word blameless has the nuance of moral integrity as seen by others. That Greek word means deserving no censor, free from fault or defect. It points to our outwardly observable behavior, including our attitudes. Think about that. When I grew up, I mean, in the English, hearing that word blameless, I mean, I sometimes, I just automatically picture without sin. I just think no sin. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. You see, nothing in our lives should give an occasion for scandal where unbelievers can look at how we are living and say, I thought he was a Christian. How can he be a Christian and live like that? You see, when we're living blamelessly, there's not that scandalous thought from people. People can misread us, absolutely. But what I'm talking about here is found, and you can write this down, I'll read it to you, Daniel chapter 6. We did a series, and we talked about Daniel a while back this year. But the Bible says in Daniel chapter 6, in verses 4 and 5, because he was faithful, nor there was any error or fault found in him. This is that same word and idea. It says, these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Is that a positive? Oh, that's a positive. Wouldn't you like to be charged like these guys were charging Daniel? Absolutely. What a great example of a blameless man. It also, in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, just looking where this word blameless was used, actually to describe people. 
It's used to describe Zacharias and Elizabeth. In Luke 1, verse 6, it says they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. Blameless. So as that word blameless leans towards more of a moral integrity as seen by others, the word harmless, the next word that Paul uses, or in some translations the word is innocent, focuses on the inward moral integrity, which is proper, the proper root for our outward blameless behavior, right? Because we know out of the abundance of the heart, right, our mouth speaks, that's what goes forth. So Paul is saying blameless and harmless here, and that Greek word harmless, if I pronounce it right, is akerios, akerios, hopefully I said that right, but it literally means unmixed, pure of the mind, and it could also mean simple. You see, it's possible, church, to put on a good front here and come to church and be leading a double life. It's possible. It's probably happening now. I have to guard against that happening to me. You see, you could put on a smile and have a warm greeting to people and be an angry tyrant all the way here. It's a fact, it's a reality, it's a truth. And what Paul is saying here is not just be blameless, but this word harmless, it's the same word that Jesus used in Mark 10, 16 when he told us uh, the disciples to be wise as serpents, harmless as what? Doves. It's this, it's this innocence, this purity by how we're living, both inside and outside. You see, all sin starts in our thoughts and our minds, church. If you don't believe me, turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Let's look there before we get back to our text here. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 20 to 23. Look at what Jesus says. He says, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from where? From within, within, out of the heart of men proceed evil what? Thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. It goes on and on. All these evil things come from where? Within. Within. Paul's saying be blameless and harmless because come in. And again, understand the context. Meditate on verses 12 and 13, which lead up to our text here today because we learn as, uh, that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that idea of working out is not like exercising. Sometimes that's what we, we think of in the English word, but it literally means in the Greek to bring forth. So in other words, church, we are to bring forth what God is doing in us. And I believe right now God is doing something in your hearts, maybe on this whole grumbling thing. That's okay. Be convicted like I was on Friday afternoon to go in, I'm studying, and I said, I gotta go talk to my daughter, because I grumbled at her the night before. <laughs> and I did that, we're blessed that my daughter, Madison, Madison, are you here, are you awake? Raise your hand. Okay, Madison's there. 
Madison's a big basketball fan, so she begged me to stay and w- up and watch the finals uh, whatever night, Thursday night, right? Steph Curry, Steph Curry fan. By the way, she's got a jump shot that, I'll tell you, was pretty good. But anyway, so she watched it. We're going to bed, and I do not like, I love our dog, but I do not want our dog in our bedroom through the night. That's just the rule. I said that, listen, we're going to get a dog. The dog stays in the hall, all right? I don't want to roll over and be responsible for a seven-pound Yorkie suffocating because I'm just getting comfortable. So that's kind of been a, a rule. My wife's agreed to it and so forth. But anyway, we're trying to be quiet. My wife's out. It's probably 11, 30, 12 o'clock. Game ended late. And so Madison's going to bed. Her door is left open. Leo, our dog, was in her room. And I'm going into the bedroom. And as I turn around, he scoots right in and just goes right under my bed. And it's 12 o'clock, and the only way to get him out is to make some noise, like grab him by the collar and hear him, you know, and whatever. But I'm thinking I can't wake my wife up. I'd rather have him growling than my wife growling. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I turn around, and Madison pops her head to say goodnight. And I'm like, Madison, Leo's in here. Why did he get in here? Why didn't you shut your door? And I just grumbled, mumbled at her, murmured, whatever you call it wasn't good she looks at me he's like dad I'm not there it's not my fault and I'm like you're right let's go to bed (laughs) (laughs) go to bed silly story but a little illustration how life can happen and we don't even realize it we can grumble in just a moment a little Yorkie going room and I get upset I mean come on so I, I, I'm studying this, and I'm like, I'm looking, and I'm like, man, I did this last night to my daughter. So I went downstairs, and the daughter comes out. What are you doing down here, Dad? I said, I need to apologize for last night. What? Oh, that's fine. I said, no. I said, I grumbled. You know, you wanted to stay up. And she, she you know, lovingly gives me a kiss and moves on. But church, you see how these little things, as we roll through life, God tells us through his word to do all things without grumbling and disputing. God, help us. Help us. Without fault is the third word there. Children of God should be blameless, harmless, and thirdly, without fault. Or in some of your Bibles, the translation again would be above reproach. And this is really, church, this is a summary of the first two words, without fault. It means literally without blemish. That's the literal, what that word means, without blemish. But it's almost a combination. If you really line these words up in the English language, right, you can almost interchange them in our language. That's why it's important. I like to study and go deeper to the original writings and the Greek and so forth to get a better picture. But that's literally what Paul is saying here and and. You know, when we grumble, whether it be about a church leader like the Israelites did about Moses in Exodus 16 or about some trial we're going through, we're really saying, God, you're not doing a very good job directing my life. You just start grumbling. Yeah, I'm upset. You know, why am I out here in the wilderness? And God, why am I not married? I'm trying to honor you, God, and I'm single and I'm getting older and older. And we just start grumbling these thoughts, these attitudes, and we get frustrated and we get upset. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, we're wrongly questioning God, if we're real. 
We see David and others, the Psalms and so forth. There's people that question God. But again, it's about what's going on in here, the heart, the heart. And we have to examine our hearts. Because oftentimes, in my case, it's just flat out sin. It's wrong. Whether it's grumbling about traffic or a situation, God tells us in all things, don't grumble. Don't dispute. And we have to understand the reality of that here today. I love what Stephen Cole says about disputing in this text. I want to read this to you. He says, disputing can either mean inward questioning or outward dissension, as referred to in 1 Timothy 2. But he says, Paul's command not to dispute does not stifle honest discussion or differences on matters of doctrine or practice, nor does it mean that it is wrong to question church leaders about problem areas, but it does confront our attitude and how we raise questions or disagreements. The dispute means to challenge in a selfish rather than submissive spirit, It means to assert your authority in an attempt to resist God and the leaders he has appointed so that you don't have to submit to his word. Satan was disputing when he said to Eve, Indeed, has God said, You shall not surely die. As Matthew Henry once put it, God's commands were given to be obeyed, not disputed. Amen? Amen. So again, it's our attitudes and our spirit that we have to constantly be asking the Lord to help us with. The third key word that I want you to write down is shine. Shine. Let's look back at verse 15. Um, If you could put verse 15 up on the screen there, verse 15 of chapter 2, after he says that we're to become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you what? Shine. Shine, but I want to back up here because, you see, this word crooked is the word from which the English word scoliosis, a curvature of the spine, actually, the spine column, that's where we get that word, crooked. It's the word that we use for scoliosis. It describes something that has deviated from the standard, which is true of all who stray about from God's path. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you go off God's path, that's what this word, that's what we're talking about. It's not what God intended. God intended, uh, what is it, Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not in your own understanding, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will, what? In some translations, make your path, what? So, see, it's straight with God. It's narrow, it's straight. It's not complicated. So if you got a lot of fuzziness or confusion going on, it's, it's, it's probably your fault. Let's just be real. It's my fault, right? God's path is narrow. It's straight. He makes it simple. We don't have to be confused. I've heard it said Christians are so narrow-minded. They don't look at, yeah, well, biblically, that's true. Jesus was narrow-minded. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No other way. So in that sense, yes. But what I love about that is we can know that we are 100% right because he didn't give any wiggle room. Well, there's this way in, or as Oprah says, there's multiple ways to get to God. These are all false things, and they're creeping up all over our country. And people I talk to, they think they're spiritual and they're on the right path, and you start to talk to them, and you think, what? What path do you want? It's Jesus and him alone. 
And we can't be afraid to say that and to speak that because that's the word of God. And in verse 17, he says, holding fast the word of life. I'm jumping ahead here. But what that means literally is hold forth the word of life. That's what we need to do. We need to hold forth the truth in these days. Amen? That word perverse intensifies this meaning by referring to a person who has strayed so far off the path that his deviation is severely twisted and distorted. Luke 9, 41, Jesus said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. He's using the same word that Paul's using here. In Deuteronomy, it's mentioned as well. In Moses' song back um, in Deuteronomy 6, I believe. You see, we live in a crooked and perverse world. Amen, church? I mean, you don't have to go far. You could flip on the news tonight and five minutes into it know we are crooked and perverse. We are not on a path uh, that we should be on as a nation. We, we know that. We see that. And, but why are we hearing in, these, in this passage, in this crooked and perverse world, where you are to shine as lights? Listen to what Stephen Cole mentions here. He says, when can you bear the most effective witness for Jesus Christ? When you're in the darkest place. It may be a place of personal trial where you radiate with God's joy in spite of your situation. Maybe you're in a dark situation at work or school surrounded by crooked and perverse people. If you do all things without grumbling and disputing, but rather are blameless, harmless, and above reproach, filled with joy in the Lord, you're going to shine. Many people will never read the Bible, but they will read you. As Paul wrote, he was in a dark place in prison, facing possible execution here from the pagan Nero. Christian preachers in Rome, they were slandering him. Even peers were slandering him back at this time out of envy and strife. But Paul says that if this life is poured out as a drink offering on the altar, if it was upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith, he rejoiced and shared that joy with them. And he urges them to rejoice in their trials and to share that joy with him. As we see at the end of chapter uh, 2, verses 17 and 18. Our lives shine as we put off grumbling and disputing and live in joy, especially in trials. Do you understand that? It's true. Martin Luther King once said this. I wrote this down earlier this week. The ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of convenience, but where they stand in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis and controversy. Think about this with me. Let's take it here. You're out. You go to Wegmans after church. You're in line, right? And somebody, you know, forgets something. Whatever the case is, you're in the Easy Express. You just want to get home, change, and eat. And, you know, the light switch goes off, beep, beep, and you're like, and Wegmans is just packed. And the person in front of you says, oh, you know, three people, domino effect, and you're in the back. It's just very easy. You're going to shine if you're like, oh. You're going to shine if you say, praise Jesus, hallelujah, you all should come to church with me. No, they're going to turn you off. But if someone turns, I can't believe it, say, you know what? make a statement like, I'm honestly, I, I mean, for me, I was in Nicaragua last year, and 
I can be a very impatient person, but I am just so blessed that I have so many choices of ice cream in this country. <laughs> Anything to just, but at that moment, if I make a statement like that, I'm shining because I'm not going with. Do you understand this? We have opportunity every day by the words that we speak to shine. God, help us shine. I want Greece December. I know this is pastor's heart. God has strategically placed this church geographically almost smack dab in the middle of Greece. If you look at how big Greece is, we are, the Long Pond Road runs right through the center of Greece. And this church literally, practically from north to the lake uh, and south, is right in the middle of Greece. Literally, I believe it is our duty to be a lighthouse in Greece, New York. To shine as Paul's writing about here, to shine forth. The fourth and final word I want you to write down, I've alluded to this, is rejoice. Rejoice. Again, Paul, and we'll talk about this more in the series, but Paul wraps up this portion of Scripture saying, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. How could Paul say that again? Because he was content. He knew the end. You know what I found interesting in studying some of these uh, passages is that the day of Christ is often right in the middle of what's going on. Why is that important? Well, that's important because if you know the goal, you know where you're going, you know that heaven's not your home. Remember, Pastor talked about this last week. Our citizenship, right, in, in Philippians 3.20 is where? In heaven, when you know that and you keep that a reality in your mind and the truth, then you can go through this knowing that it's all worth it in the end. I know where I'm going. I'm happy. I'm content in all things. There is no need for me to grumble. Today's takeaway, I want to leave you with this, and it's in your notes there. Our testimony as children of God requires that we be marked not by grumbling and disputing, but by what? Joy even in trials. Amen? Amen. So be it, church. So be it in your life and in my life. Would you bow your heads and hearts with me as we look to the Lord in prayer? Maybe you're here today. I have two calls here as I wrap up this message. Maybe you're here today. You've been visiting or someone invited you. And, you know, hopefully you sense God's love here. Hopefully you understand, yeah, this is truth. It's not because of any preacher, but it's God's word that we're opening up. God's word is true, and his word will not return void. But maybe you do not know that your eternity is secure in heaven. Maybe if you were to die, you can't guarantee, yeah, I'm right with God. I've, I've made it right with God. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you are unsure, if your heart was to give out this afternoon where you would spend eternity, Today, just in this moment, the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, the promise is that you will be saved. And with your heads bowed and eyes closed, is there anyone here today, you are not certain about your eternity and you want to be certain. You're not looking at this as a get out of hell card. You're looking at this as, wow, life is truly more abundantly with Jesus. He's the only one that can forgive me of my sins. I'm going to turn from the life I'm living and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If that's you here today, I would ask you to just raise your hand. I want to pray with you before we close. Anyone at all? 
If you're ashamed to raise your hand, I'm just going to be blunt and honest, then you are not ready to follow Jesus. Jesus very publicly told people, follow me. People had to drop their nets. They had to stop what they were doing. Jesus himself says, if you deny me here on earth, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. So if you're too embarrassed and say, oh, I'm not going to do this, I'll just pray here. Listen, I'm not saying this to embarrass anybody, but you can say, we're all on your side, those of us that are followers of Christ. We want to welcome you into the kingdom of heaven and God. You want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to pray with you. Would you raise your hand, anyone at all? You're not sure where you would spend eternity. God bless you. Anyone else? God bless you. You can put your hand down. God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts here today. And I'm going to ask you, if you raise your hand, I'd love to bless you with the Bible and pray for you in just a moment when I dismiss the service. But those of you that raised your hand, just in the quietness of your heart, ask God. Say, God, I believe in you. I'm just leading you. I'm not praying for you. I'm leading you. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. And I would encourage you right now where you're sitting in your pew to just confess your sin to God. God, forgive me for lying, for this, for that, for whatever it is that God brings to your attention. The Bible says that all those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As you are praying and confessing your sin, God and his grace and his goodness will forgive you and set your eternity straight. Church, we should rejoice. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise for those that are welcoming Jesus. Praise God. I want to stand here in closing. Could you all stand with me? We're going to close with this chorus again. The altar is going to be open. Maybe you're convicted, as I was, of this grumbling, disputing. Maybe you just know you got to make it right with God. If you want to come forward for prayer, myself and Pastor Ken would love to pray with you. We're going to sing this chorus a couple times through. Then Pastor Ken's going to give the benediction. But if you raised your hand earlier, please see me, uh, see my wife, see one of the leaders, and make sure that you get a Bible. We want to encourage you in your faith journey in Jesus Christ. Let's close with this chorus. My hope is built.